Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Long interviews today, so less of me. Mike German, a fellow of the Brennan Center for Justice, will talk about white supremacist organizations, particularly their connection with the cops. And at the bottom of the hour, Hadass Tier will talk about her new primer on Marxist economics. You've probably seen the videos of the Philly cops buddying it up with the Proud Boys and the Portland cops greasing the way for Patriot Prayer. What is it with the police and violent white supremacist and neo-Nazi organizations? Here's Mike German, a former FBI agent and now fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice, who specializes in liberty and national security, to explain. Mike German. So let's go back to your experience uh, before we talk about the the current problem. You went undercover when you first joined the FBI in the early 90s, right? Uh, What uh, what did you find? Who did you investigate? Where where was this based? Uh, Right. It it wasn't when I just joined the FBI. I had been an agent about four years uh, and was asked to go undercover in neo-Nazi groups in Southern California right after the civil unrest following the Rodney King beating. So circumstances were remarkably similar, and uh, the FBI had picked up intelligence that uh, white supremacist groups were stockpiling weapons in advance of what they thought would be further unrest to try to spark a race war uh, and engaging in illegal weapons manufacturing and transactions. So I was undercover for a total of about 14 months and identified many criminal acts, including a couple of bombings that we solved and weapons trafficking. Uh, And then in the late 90s, went undercover again in far right militia groups in the Pacific Northwest engaged in the same kind of criminal activity. And uh, how, how active were cops in this? My cases didn't uncover any involvement of law enforcement, but we were warned about that. And the FBI works terrorism cases off joint terrorism task forces. So those involve state and local law enforcement oftentimes. And I worked with some really great state and local law enforcement officers, but all of us were warned and acknowledged that there were uh, sympathizers of white supremacist groups within law enforcement so that we had to all be very careful about who we shared information about the case with. And so, you know, those warnings were common to me when this 2006 paper was released by the FBI in a redacted form that, that indicated the FBI did have information of white supremacist infiltration of Uh, law enforcement. And then again, in 2015, uh, documents leaked from the FBI's counterterrorism program, a counterterrorism policy guide that warned agents working domestic terrorism cases against white supremacists and far-right militants, that the subjects of those investigations would often have contacts with law enforcement. And it recommended that they not put the individuals on the terrorist watch list in a way that the police uh, who have access to the list would be able to to review it to see if their friends were on it. So obviously this was something that, that is acknowledged in law enforcement but not really discussed publicly. And more concerning to me is the fact that although it's not acknowledged that white supremacist sympathizers exist in law enforcement, there isn't any national strategy to protect the public from them. I want to go back to those, uh, those two reports that, uh, that you mentioned, but when you say uh, they were trying to foment a race war in the 90s, what was the intention of that? Because, you know, it looks like we're there again. What, what exactly were they trying to provoke? They were provoking what, what they were then calling Rahoa, the racial holy war. This idea of a apocalyptic war that would force everyone to take sides, that they believed that most white people thought just as they thought, but were involved in a multicultural society and, and supportive of a multicultural society only for, for short-term gain, for their own professional achievement or other things. But, but if there was some pressure on them, like a, the beginning of a, a, a war, that they would have to take sides and come over to join the, the white supremacists. 
so that that's the idea is that if we can create this enormous conflict, then there will be a natural separation between the races. And you're right, it's nothing different than what today they're calling the boogaloo, this idea of a cleansing war that will get rid of their enemies and put them on top to, uh, to be the decision makers. So the idea is, that, you know, wake up sheeple kind of thing. Exactly. When you said you saw bombings and weapons trafficking, um, what kind of, what were they bombing? What were the targets? There were a number of targets. It was a group that was just starting out to do it. So, so they were basically targeting their, their enemies from uh, their neighborhood uh, mostly. But obviously, once a group has manufactured a bomb and actually used it, that gets everybody's attention at the FBI. So you know, luckily, nobody had yet been, been injured and we were able to purchase bombs from them. So we solved that problem through uh, criminal prosecutions. And what kind of people populated these organizations? Demographics? What, what could you, any, any generalizations you could make about them? No. And in fact, the people who try to make generalizations, I think, don't really understand the movement. I mean, there were very professional people involved. There were students, very good students, college students. Uh, you know, certainly there were people who who fit the, the profile, so to speak, you know, not very well educated, not very intelligent, but there were also a lot of very intelligent people. I mean, one of the things that that surprised me, and again, part of it was because the, the literature and the academic research and, and even the FBI's internal intelligence had, didn't really prepare me that it, it, it was a, a very literate movement, that you know, this wasn't just some wackos on the fringe of society that, that basically they had were perpetuating very intricate ideologies and theologies and philosophies that justified European colonization of the new world. It justified slavery. It justified the Jim Crow laws. You know, the way they look at history was that, that the way our society developed was, was proper and that the movement towards equal justice for all races under the law of the 1960s was, was a, a, a dangerous experiment gone wrong. So, you know, understanding that white supremacy was the foundation of, of the creation of our nation, uh, I think is important to, to understand how white supremacy continues to influence our law enforcement in particular, but our, our, entire, our entire society as well. And did they talk about what drew them into the movement? Was it some personal experience, some philosophy, some disillusionment? What, what, uh, what were the motives? All different kinds. There were people who were raised in it. There were people who, who were coming from very liberal families who were rejecting what they were raised with. Uh, there were people who were just there because they liked to make bombs, and this was a group that appreciated that talent. I don't think that they're... There is any general generalized pathway or anything like that. There were some people, you know, and, and again, as an FBI agent, I wasn't interested in the people who were just the ideologues and people who went out to, to engage in protests and rallies. I was only interested in the people who were engaging in criminal activity. And that was one important distinction I found was that there was a, an arm's length relationship between the two. And. You know, most of the people that that were engaged in the violent activity uh, were not very ideological and saw the the rigidity of the ideological folks as an impediment to their methodological gains in, in being the vanguard of the movement. So the linkages between ideology and violence, I think, are very much overstated in the way that our government talks about terrorism since 9-11 and the way the media talks about it. Oh, what do you mean by that exactly? So after 9-11, the, the government, including the FBI, resurrected this concept of radicalization. And this is an old model that governments have used for 100 years to basically take any kind of political violence and smear anyone who is professing similar ideas. So it's a w way if there is some kind of political violence against your regime, rather than just targeting the people who are engaged in violence, you can use this radicalization theory to demonize everyone who is oppositional to your government. 
So this radicalization theory suggests that it's not just the people who are engaging in violence who are the problem. It's everyone who believes the same thing as those who engage in violence. So that creates this idea of going after radicals. And of course, in the early 1900s, the radicals were, were trade unionists and pacifists and uh, socialists. And then in the 60s, it was uh, communists and socialists again, and civil rights workers and anti-war activists. And you know the, the reason that Martin Luther King was treated so abysmally by the FBI, the justification was that he was a radical, and he was a radical leader who was radicalizing the black population in the United States. And so that justified suppressive activities against him, even though they knew that Martin Luther King was not a violent person, he was not engaged in criminal activities, yet justified that through this radicalization theory. So this was resurrected after 9-11, specifically focusing on uh, Muslim groups, uh, Al-Qaeda, but using that concept of radicalization to broaden out the, the target throughout the Muslim world, um, and including Muslim Americans specifically being targeted with these programs. So, you know, in many ways, that manner of thinking became kind of like the gateway drug uh, for other biased biases in law enforcement, that if you could think of terrorism as a problem of Muslims, then you could think of immigration as a problem of Latinos, even though obviously there are many other areas from which people immigrate to the United States and, and don't uh, necessarily have all the proper documentation. And you know, obviously the way Donald Trump has amplified uh, that rhetoric, uh, complaining about urban crime, which is an old trope to mean black crime, well, and of course, we have uh, Trump also uh, blaming the anti-fascists for the violence uh, and not paying much attention or even approving of the uh, the white supremacists. Exactly. And using that term Antifa in, in a way that isn't really descriptive of a real thing. Right. I mean, that term became kind of a right wing bugaboo during these violent far right rallies that have occurred since uh, Trump started campaigning but really has absolutely nothing to do with the Black Lives Matter protests. I mean, those aren't really anti-fascist actions. And I think it was just easier for them to use that trope of Antifa as the antagonist because it, was, it would have been less possible for them to say that the Black Lives Matter protesters were the criminals who were doing this. So it's a way of diverting attention and taking away agency from the black protesters and, and supporters of Black Lives Matter that allows a more aggressive police response against them. You know, in other words, if, if, if the police are, are told they have to go and attack the community they're supposed to be serving and protecting, that's a little hard to get your head around. But if they're told th this is this outside agitator who is creating the violence, it's much easier to unleash police violence. I'm speaking with Mike German, a Brennan Center Fellow in Liberty and National Security. Okay, now head to these documents, the 2006 FBI assessment and the 2015 uh, counterterrorism guide. W what did they say uh, about uh, relations between law enforcement and white supremacists? Uh, so the 2006 document w was the, the typical regular warning like those I received in the 1990s. It was just advising agents that there is a problem of, and it it used the term infiltration, but made clear in the text that, that that didn't necessarily mean that somebody who was a white supremacist had somehow snuck into law enforcement, but also that people in law enforcement might have sympathy for white supremacist uh, ideas and, and affiliations with white supremacist groups. And, and again, that's something that's been true through, throughout our history in the United States. Um, so it was just creating this awareness within the agency, but it's interesting. And, and the document has some redactions, so we don't know what it says underneath those redactions. But mainly it appears that the FBI's concern over the idea of white supremacist police officers is the integrity of FBI investigations and making sure that intelligence isn't leaking back to these groups through law enforcement uh, or, or that the other concern was that because law enforcement has access to law enforcement spaces, that they could pose a, a risk to protected persons within 
law enforcement community or that the law enforcement community is supposed to protect. But there was virtually nothing with the caveat that there were restrictions that talked about the concern to the public that having white supremacist police officers posed a significant threat to members of the community that they had the authority to police. Uh, and certainly no national strategy was developed to protect American communities from white supremacist police officers. So that was part of my concern with, with that document. You know, it acknowledged a problem, but it didn't provide an adequate solution or even identify what, what the problem, what the greatest, greater part of the problem was. Yeah, it's a rather parochial concern about what was meant for the FBI, right. but not for what it meant people getting beaten. Yeah, investigations, but I would think that that would be secondary to protecting the public. And you can imagine if the FBI had a report that Al-Qaeda had infiltrated law enforcement, that there would be an, a, a national effort to identify those officers and make sure that the, the public was protected from them. But if you look at it, over the last 10 years, the FBI acknowledges white supremacists have killed more than any other terrorist movement. Uh, so it's a lethal threat and, and dangerous. And if police officers are sympathetic to them, they pose a significant threat to the public. Now, when they say infiltration, which is the direction? White supremacists joining the cops? Or is it uh, that the cops are uh, joining the white supremacist organizations? Yeah, the document is, is entitled using the, the word infiltration, but it makes clear in the text that it's both ways and all of the above. And that's correct. You know, it's certainly possible that somebody had white supremacist viewpoints when they applied to the, the law enforcement agency, but also possible for people in, in law enforcement to develop relationships with white supremacist groups. And then the 2015 document? Uh, the 2015 document was a little different because it was a counterterrorism policy guide. So it was basically what agents assigned to terrorism cases are supposed to read and implement. And in that document, uh, it again mentioned that uh, not just that white supremacists might be in law enforcement, but that subjects of FBI domestic terrorism investigations often have relationships with law enforcement. So it's not just that white supremacists have relationships with law enforcement, but that subjects of terrorism investigations have relationships with law enforcement, which you would think would raise the level of concern. And this was a leaked document, so it doesn't have redactions, but the only instruction it provides to these domestic terrorism officers is to use a silent hit feature on the terrorist watch list. And basically what that feature does is if, if a police officer queries the watch list with a name that the officer wouldn't get any information back, but the agent who put that person on the list would get notified. So they call that a silent hit because it doesn't alarm for everyone. It's a troubling sort of response, number one, because again, it doesn't acknowledge the danger to the community. But number two, the whole purpose of the terrorist watch list is so that police officers out there coming across these people would understand that they might pose a particular risk. The idea that we would forfeit the use of this tool because we're so concerned that law enforcement officers themselves might be affiliated with the individuals we're putting on the list reflects the dangerousness of the situation. We first started talking about what happened in the early 90s. So we've been through, I don't know what, four or five different administrations presidential administrations over that period. Uh, it doesn't seem like officialdom has given much attention to this or done much of anything about it. No, and, and, and not just about white supremacists in, in law enforcement, but about white supremacist violence writ large or far-right militant violence. Today, the FBI could not tell you how many people white supremacists killed in the last year or the last five years or the last 10 years because they don't keep those records. If a white supremacist kills somebody, the FBI could treat that as domestic terrorism. That's the top FBI priority. So they would have plenty of resources to, to investigate that. And they would take any information from the investigation and put it in their terrorism intelligence cycle. But more often, they would characterize it as a hate crime. Most white supremacist violence has some racial element to it, or at least a lot of it does. They call it a hate crime. That means it drops to the number fifth priority. So far fewer resources would be available 
But moreover, the Justice Department has a policy of deferring the investigation and prosecution of hate crimes to state and local law enforcement authorities, which could be good. There's a lot more law enforcement officers, so maybe they could do a, a better job with these cases, except that we know that at least five states don't have hate crimes laws. And more, more states than that have, have laws on the books, but they don't enforce them. Only 12.6% of law enforcement agencies acknowledge that hate crimes occur in their jurisdictions in national reporting. So there's only a small minority of police agencies that report this. Victim surveys, uh, the Justice Department does crime victim surveys on a regular basis. And those suggest there are about 230,000 hate crimes each year. The FBI has five federal statutes available to it for hate crimes, and they prosecute 25 defendants each year. The scope of not just the, the amount of crime that's happening that's not being addressed, but the, all the intelligence that's being lost because the federal government isn't investigating those crimes. Uh, actually, if you look at the, the federal records, more white supremacists are prosecuted by the Justice Department under the Violent Crimes Program, uh, which is the sixth priority out of eight priorities total. And again, that when they're treated as, as violent crimes rather than terrorism, it, it doesn't go into the intelligence cycle. There's no opportunity to collect information to understand what the scope of the problem might be or as my cases did, go in and identify the people who, who are just learning how to make bombs and, and stop them before they cause further harm. And finally, we've seen lots of videos in recent months uh, of evidence of complicity between law enforcement and far-right organizations. There were the, you know, the, the Philadelphia cops buddying it up with the Proud Boys. There's a lot, of, a lot of evidence of connections between the Portland police and the Patriot Prayer folks up there. We've seen uh, cops wearing uh, insignia of white supremacist organizations while on patrol. What do you think when you see that? It's very concerning, not just because it clearly shows that, that, that the intelligence law enforcement have about the tactics these groups used in the 1990s has, has been lost, that they don't realize these rallies are, are a provocation, that, the, that these far-right militant groups go intentionally target communities. They know they have political opposition with the the goal of drawing the political opposition out so they can attack them. That was well understood in the 1990s with the officers that I worked with, and I'm not sure why it's not understood now. But more than that, when you look at the history of these groups, they kill police officers. And, and why police officers wouldn't recognize that this threat isn't just to the public, it's a threat to them and their colleagues. And for them to be uh, acting friendly with these groups is, is hugely dangerous because it gives these groups the idea that they have government authority to act violently. Well, you know, then we have like what Senator Ron Johnson calling him citizen soldiers. And uh, we've got the president, as we're recording this, President Kenosha pouring gasoline in the fire. So like, they're playing along. Exactly. And, and when I was working undercover in the 90s, the, the people I was I was making bombs with, they would have never gone to a public rally because that's where the they knew that they were under police scrutiny and, and that's where they would get identified and get identified as part of the movement and possibly get arrested. But if they had the idea that, they, that, that their activities were actually sanctioned by the government, which is what's happening with this rhetoric coming from the White House and other uh, Republican figures, and they go and they see their, their colleagues engaging in violence and not being arrested by the police, that is going to draw and has drawn the more violent elements to those groups. And, and the thing to keep in mind is there's no barrier to entry with these groups. If you put on a Hawaiian shirt tomorrow, a bulletproof vest over it, a boonie hat, and carried an AR-15 into the protest, you, you're a boogaloo boy. Right. There's no there's no membership form. There's no application process. So people who, who just want to be violent, they look at those protests and they say, oh, I can just dress up that way and go be violent and walk away without any concern. So it, it's really dangerous 
And then compounding on that is when the community members realize the police aren't protecting them, they're going to seek self-help remedies. And so this is going to create a cycle of violence that I think is going to be very difficult to, to wind down again. But this is the race war the white supremacists want. Exactly. Exactly. And here we have government figures pushing them in that direction is, is extremely dangerous. I was Mike German, a fellow of the Brennan Center for Justice, who specializes in liberty and national security. He has a column on the topic on The Guardian's website and a longer paper on the Brennan Center site, brennancenter.org. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of We Don't Need This Fascist Groove Thing by Heaven 17 from 1981. Next, Marxist economics. People often ask me to recommend a good intro to economics in general and left economics in particular. Here's a fresh answer to that question. Hadass Tier, a Brooklyn-based writer, is just out with A People's Guide to Capitalism, an introduction to Marxist economics from Haymarket Books. It looks mainly at Marx, not as many epigones, and provides an excellent entry point for people who want to figure out what's going on in this world and find mainstream, dare I say bourgeois, explanations to be shallow and or devious. Hadas Tier. I like the, uh, the metaphor you use uh, at the beginning of the book where uh, if uh, all of human history were a single day, capitalism would last about three minutes of that day, which is a reminder that this thing, um, even though it seems timeless, ha- does have a history. Let's talk first about the emergence of capitalism, which, you know, according to its ideologues, if this thing is eternal. It's like wired into human nature. Obviously, it has a history and a, a fairly um, brutal one. Um, so let's we'll start with the concept of primitive accumulation, where that happened um, and what did it do? Marx spends a lot of time explaining that capitalism is not just a natural state of being and that there is nothing natural about just having the society that clearly breaks out into some people that have and some people that have not. We're not born that way. It's not hardwired. So Adam Smith had this whole passage, many passages that um, Marx really makes fun of, which is this idea that we just naturally, because it's in our DNA, and this is how humans like to organize ourselves. Over time, we just became more and more broken down into these groups. Some people were more thrifty, and they saved, and they managed to have more things. (laughs) And the rest of us were lazy and idle, and uh, eventually just didn't have as many things, and so we had to work for a living. And I'm caricaturing it a bit. That not not is, by much, really. But not by much, exactly. So, so Marx goes through great pains to expose what a lie that is. You know that first of all, it's a process that didn't exist for the vast majority of human history. As it did emerge, it took several centuries of not just struggle, but violence and the enclosure movements. He talks quite a lot about in Capital, and I discuss it in my book, that masses of people had to be violently ripped from their lands and ability to sustain themselves and their families. People were left in just complete squalor and desperation Not only that, but still with all that desperation, it still didn't propel people to just naturally want to work for somebody else. And there had to be these unbelievable draconian laws of, you know, branding people and murdering people and 
enslaving people essentially in order to force people to learn how to become a new working class that is economically coerced to have to work in order to survive. And the, the threat of violence was still important under capitalism today, but was much more important in the early days of capitalism to mold and shape this, this new class of of workers. Yeah, now the canonical story is about England, but uh, this is a process that was repeated elsewhere and was brought to Africa and Latin America by uh, colonialists. Um, the birth pangs of capitalism uh, have these similarities that they have to bust up a pre existing system and force people into what your average Austrian economist would say was just human nature. Yes, exactly. Okay, and then on to uh, the, the charming system in itself. Uh, Marx, of course, begins uh, Capital um, with a famous uh, chapter on the commodity. The commodity is you know, the star of capitalism in a lot of ways. Um, what do Marxists mean by the term, and uh, what about its dual nature? He starts Capital. This is you know one, one thing that I do a little bit differently in my book, where I start a little bit with a history, and, and he ends with a history at the, at the end of volume one of Capital. He starts straight up with just the commodity, which for some people is a little bit of an abstract place to begin, and some people get stuck there. But I think it's a really important place to start because he makes a case that it's basically the cellular structure of capitalism is the yeah, commodity. I, I just want to pause a moment and just admire the structure of the three volumes of capital. Of course, the second two weren't finished, but um, you know, it starts with this, this one little commodity, tables and linen and coats and these very simple things, and moves out and out and out to get to, you know, the financial markets and imperialism and all kinds of things. Just um, the structure of it is really quite elegant. So people, you know, complain about the difficulty of that opening chapter, but it really is the point of entry into this whole system. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It's beautiful. And it's also, I think, so important because basically his approach is let's start with the very basic building blocks. And you can't, if you just read chapter one of volume one of Capital and you learn about the commodity, it's hard to then apply it to, you know, the current modern economic and financial systems that we have. But what he does is he starts with the elemental forms. He starts by trying to isolate those and in a somewhat like abstract way to, to be able to unearth the basic foundations that lie beneath the surface. And then from there, you can build upwards and upwards until you get to the surface. Uh, and I think that's really, really important. And part of what makes Marxism so much more useful than mainstream economics, which is so fixated with just prices and fluctuations in the stock market. And, you know, if you start there and you try to understand capitalism by analyzing, you know, the fluctuations of prices and, and et cetera, uh, you really get lost. I tried, I don't know if I succeeded, but I, I tried to not overwhelm the book with Marx quotes, but it was, I, I love so many of the way, you know, his quotes and the way that he talks about things. That, yeah, very quotable fellow. Yes, exactly. And I start actually chapter two, where I get into commodities and what's known as a labor theory of value with this, this quote that I love about the table, and how it just looks like a form of wood and an, and an ordinary sensuous thing. But as soon as it emerges as a commodity, which is something that's sold on the market, it transcends sensuousness. It not only stands with its feet on the ground, but in relation to other commodities, it stands on its head and involves out of its wooden brain grotesque ideas far more wonderful than if it was to begin dancing of its own free will. You know, it's just this beautiful kind of poetry that people don't necessarily associate with Marx, but I think um, makes, especially volume one, which is, you know, the one volume he completed, um, just really, a, I, I find a very rich and beautiful read. But basically, so to, to go back to your initial question, right, so the commodity is the basic form of capitalism. Everything around us is a commodity. The chair that you sit on, the house that you live in, the knickknacks inside of it, the electricity that you've bought to make your house run, and et cetera, et cetera. And the thing that makes a commodity a commodity is that it's produced and then bought and sold uh, on the market. It's not just a loaf of bread that you make at home to eat. Yeah, all these uh, very useful things nonetheless have price tags attached to them. Exactly. 
uh, and that's what makes uh, capitalism capitalism. And so what what a lot of the um, classical economists at the time that Marx was kind of cutting his teeth against struggled with this point. On the one hand, you know, so it's, there's this thing called the labor theory of value that's very much associated with Marx, although Marx spent very little time talking about the labor theory of value because it was pretty much considered incontroversial by the classical economists at the time. They also talked about the labor theory of value. But what they struggled with is was really identifying how to measure it. What does determine value under capitalism? And most of them gravitated towards this idea that Marx also developed, which is that it is labor that actually creates value and determines how valuable something is. So he talked, but what he did that was useful was that he broke it apart, which is one of the things that Marx does brilliantly throughout his writings. He breaks everything apart. Within the commodity, he identified commodities use value, what it is that you use it for. You sit on a chair, that's its use value. And it's exchange value, how it's valued in relation to other commodities on the market. And what he explained is that the exchange value of a commodity is determined by how much labor goes in to produce it. There's various qualifying aspects to that. It's not just how much labor time it takes to make a chair, but also the labor time that went into producing the wood and the machinery and the tools that are necessary to have made that chair. So there are several layers of it. And he explained that it's, it's about not just theoretically how long does it take me or you to make a chair, because I'm not a very good chair maker. Maybe you are, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't want to make any assumptions. But what's the socially accepted necessary labor time to produce a chair? What is the average amount of time that chair factory, you know, companies that make chairs, how long does it take them to make a chair? And the, and the reason that that's important too, and this gets into some of the topics later in the book, is that within that very basic and somewhat maybe abstract point is a very important nugget for what drives all of capitalism and decision-making around capitalism, which is a race around reducing the socially necessary amount of time to produce something. Because if you are the CEO of a chair-making company, you have to keep up with whatever the average amount of time is to produce a chair. You can't just keep making the chairs the way that you know how to make them and you know, you've grown fond of making them that way. You have to, whether you like it or not, constantly be upgrading the machinery and the tools and the methods of production in order to, at the very least, stay par with everyone else, but more importantly, get ahead. And that's what every company, regardless of whether they're producing chairs or bombs or growing grapes, like every company is driven by that basic motion. And I think that's an important internal dynamic to understand about capitalism. Yeah, I think somewhere Marx says uh, competition is a force that says march, march. Exactly. Bourgeois economists, of course, like to talk about supply and demand as the driver of the system. You know, that's what determines prices. And you know, supply and demand do contribute to the formation of prices. And these are not unimportant things. But the fundamental political point that the commodity, or the whole system is driven by labor and labor operating on nature, I should say. That fundamental political point is one that the, the bourgeois economists want to forget and mystify. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because the classical economists talked a lot more openly about labor being the source of wealth in society. Adam Smith, Ricardo, they're all like very clear about that point, actually, in part because they were writing as capitalism was first developing and they were, they were real social scientists, you know, they had a lot of limitations. And as I said, things that Marx mocked and plenty that Marx disagreed with, but they were actually trying to attempt to understand something. They were the ideologues and but social scientists of capitalism as it was being birthed. Often quite clear in the class dimensions of everything. Exactly. Yeah. And there were a lot of debates within that about what it meant and, you know, a lot of, con but, you know, Ricardo was very concerned about something that 
was later associated to just be considered a Marxist concern, which is a falling rate of profitability. But Ricardo was really interested in that and concerned about it because they actually wanted to understand and explain capitalism, whatever their limitations. Um, Modern economists play, I think, a very different role. And there was a shift at some point where around mainstream economics, where classical economy turned into neoclassical economy, where really all of the basic fundamentals of Smith and Ricardo and others were dropped. There's no more talk about the labor theory of value, obviously. There's very little talk of labor at all. Uh, But it is, as you say, a question of supply and demand, question of marginal utility. How do you determine value? What are the things that drive value up or down, etc.? And labor is strangely, but not coincidentally, absent. I'm speaking with Hadass Tier, author of A People's Guide to Capitalism, an Introduction to Marxist Economics, just out from Haymarket Books. Money. How does money fit into all this? I mean, one of my pet peeves is uh, people who think you can fundamentally reform capitalism by playing with the form or the, uh, the quantity of money. But uh, what's a, a more um, correct and Marxian view of, of the role of money? This is another place where Marx starts out with a very abstract explanation of money, but then builds it out. But his main point is to say, you basically need something to grease the wheels of exchange in a way that we have a very complex economy. You could could never barter in the capitalist economy, maybe whatever you could with your neighbor or something on, on the side. But in terms of the way that capitalism works, there are billions or trillions of exchanges that take take place every single day and you need a marker of value and it's not to say that there's a one-to-one relationship at all between what we just talked about before the exchange value of a commodity you know how much labor has gone into creating this chair imbues it with some kind of a value that doesn't then translate directly into money prices. But at its base form, money is a substitute for kind of representing value and it's easily portable and can store over a period of time that value. So if you want to sell chairs, you don't necessarily have to barter them directly for, you know, make enough chairs so that they can exchange for the car that you want. You exchange them for money. That money is a representative of value. When Marx's time that representation of money was tied to gold. Then eventually we get to the system uh, that we have right now, which is, which is not tied to gold, where the government backs the same kind of concept of money, but doesn't have to exchange it for gold in the end. And that's a, a longer, more complicated question to get into. But I think the important thing in terms of, as you say, the idea that you would just tinker with money and that changes the economy gets a relationship backwards. It's the economy is what is ultimately the thing that, that matters, the production, the distribution, the exchange, and money is a representative of that. And there, there are various things you could do to tinker with money supply, and it does, it's not that it doesn't make a difference, but that those are the things that happen at the surface of the system and don't change the fundamental relationships beneath the surface. Okay, and um, profit. There's a political challenge here because the anti-tax right gets a lot of mileage out of calling taxation a form of confiscation, which makes intuitive sense to a lot of people. They see it taken out of their paycheck or added to the cost of a purchase. Um, The confiscation involved in profit is much more complicated and not quite so obvious. So let's talk about what this analysis tells us about the the source of profit and the ultimate root of inequality. Yeah, exactly. It's um, one of the things that makes capitalism so unique where previous class societies, you know, the Lord would, would come to your hut or whatever, wherever it is you lived and kind of threat to bonk you over the head if you didn't turn over the surplus that you created. In capitalism, there's this mystique of you do a fair day's work and you receive a fair day's wage. And there may be disagreements that you have with your boss about how much your wage should be how much you should produce, how quickly you should produce. And that's all in the terrain of labor struggles and and union struggles. And those are really important. But there's an underlying theft that is just at the bottom of all of this that's rarely 
acknowledged or challenged, which is that even at its best, just by virtue of, of going to work, you are getting paid for what has to be less than what the value is that you're producing. Obviously, that varies you know, from workplace to workplace and person to person. But on balance, the way that the system works is that the working class as a whole produces more value than it is uh, reimbursed for. And that's what drives the phenomenal growth of wealth in our society and, and over time. And so basically what Marx exposes, our labor power is a commodity under capitalism, just like every other commodity. And what it costs the capitalists to, to buy in the form of the wages that they pay us is what they t- determine is the socially necessary labor time that has gone into producing our labor. So whatever value has gone into producing the food, the, the housing, the clothes, the education to keep me, to keep the workforce um, going, that's the value of our labor power. And that's what, that's what we get paid for. Uh, but we get paid for our ability to labor. That's the commodity that they're buying. But then what that labor produces is something totally different and more um, than, than its value. Okay, and then like, uh, finally, because uh, I'm skipping over some stuff here and people want to know more, um, they should buy the book and read it. Um, but the point of in, this intellectual work, you know, as the man said, is to change the system, right? So what does this kind of analysis offer uh, to uh, political strategy? What does this tell us about how to proceed in politics? Yeah, exactly. That's the, that's the million-dollar question because Marx didn't spend all of his time just as a intellectual uh, curiosity, but because... We want to change capitalism. We want to overthrow capitalism. And there's a lot of implications. One of them is that when you look beneath the surface at how it is that capitalism functions and you look at the laws of the motion of capitalism, you find really an unthinking profit machine. It's not that it doesn't matter what individuals do within that. Obviously, we have a president right now, who's the absolute worst president you can imagine during this period. It's not that that doesn't matter, but Trump being the president and, and Trump being you know, a homicidal maniac is symptomatic, not explanatory of what it is that's produced this crisis. And if you think that it's just about individuals, then that impacts what you spend all of your time organizing around. And again, it's not that those things don't matter and shouldn't be organized around, but that it, that only gives you part of the picture. That then leaves you confused when the so-called liberal, rational, alternative people like Andrew Cuomo, uh, where, where we live here in New York, that are supposed to be the rational alternative to Trump, well, what's driving his decision making? Actually, there's a lot of overlap <laughs> There is a lot of disagreement between people like Trump and people like Cuomo, but there's a lot of overlap in what's driving their thinking, right? States depend on the revenue of a profit system, and it's an unthinking system. The profit system can't stand still. It is that constant drive that we were talking about earlier to remain competitive, to remain profitable, uh, as opposed to any other corporations and any other countries. Um, and states corporations. So if the U.S. economy just shut down for as long as was necessary to shut down, the fear is that other countries would would move ahead and that other corporations in other countries would take advantage of that time to grow their market share, to advance their production capacity, to advance their, advance their technological capacity, etc. And you know, it's not a coincidence that the U.S. is the number one economic superpower, and it's also the number one epicenter of the pandemic. It's this relentless drive uh, to profit. So I think that's one really important implication of having a Marxist view of the economy, is that you can understand what's driving the ceaseless profit motive. But also, uh, since the working class is the producer of all value, that... Uh does give the working class considerable leverage, which it doesn't always exercise. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the most important strategic implications of, of Marxism is that when you locate the source of value within the working class, that has very radical implications. And that's one of the main reasons why, of course, um, mainstream economists have conveniently left out the question of labor in their equations. Yeah, it's like the classic economics joke, <laughs> assume a working class. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And of course, you know, we're seeing all of that on display. I mean, we're seeing every aspect of capitalism on display in very, in a very acute and sharp way right now during this pandemic. We can see, first of all, even just on an ideological level that suddenly mainstream discussion has to include a discussion of the working class, that words like essential worker are even, you know, what, what people are talking about. It is an admission that actually the logistics workers, the grocery workers, the healthcare workers, education workers, et cetera, are essential to society running. Whereas, you know, Elon Musk's, you know, mission to Mars and pig brain transplants, et cetera, are not what is essential to society. So part of it is just an ideological kind of exposition of um, the role of workers and how the system really functions, as well as what happens when teachers threaten a strike and how important teachers are to keeping the economy going. I mean, literally, our economy is incapacitated while schools are closed. And, and that's a really important lesson. So there's the, there's the positive lessons for our side and for the labor movement about our power that I think is really important and has powerful implications. And there's the very, very many, um, almost inexhaustible amount of examples on the negative end of how capitalism is completely incapable of taking care of human life. That was Hadass Tier, author of A People's Guide to Capitalism, An Introduction to Marxist Economics, just out from Haymarket Books. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of the Internationale Hot Jazz version by Stefan Grappelli. Till next week, bye.